until fairly recent times, the view of data as an asset, that's a very new concept. Because what the assets were, were the buildings, and they were the things that had meaning. More recently, the information about those assets, the people, the kinds of uses, the patterns, all of that data is really, really powerful. So now we're on this thing about, oh, information is really important now. It's not just who paid the rent. Way, way more than that. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on October 26th, is a conversation with David Stanford, the founder and executive managing director of Real Foundations, a real estate consulting firm that, simply put, helps make real estate companies run better. David's belief and a long-term thesis of mine is that as real estate companies become of institutional scale, it is equally the qualities of the operating platform that moves the needle as much as the real estate itself and the more celebrated side, the transactions that built the portfolio. This conversation with David is a deep dive into various aspects of how to add value and basis points to the operating platforms of real estate companies. This reminds me of one of my favorite moments leading a panel now about half dozen years ago. I was on stage with two REIT analysts, my friends Jay Loop and Ross Smotrich, in front of a group of REIT HR executives. I was talking with them about what analysts look for as they assess REITs, and specifically asked Ross how deeply he assessed the operating platform versus the real estate assets. He said that when doing property tours, he was not just looking at the real estate, but that he liked to talk to the site employees to see how deeply understanding and aligned they are with a corporate operating model. That was an aha moment for the HR execs as they saw the importance of the team they hire and the tools and training that they provide. For me, it was a crystallized example of the importance of platform in distinguishing companies in our business. And of course, the importance of operating platform as a driver of the human capital work that we do at Terra Search Partners. A lot of our work is on the transaction side. But as companies seek to climb the curve of sophistication, our work in helping bring in talent that thinks new school versus old school, bringing more sophisticated platform knowledge likely from a respected competitor is essential. Talent, training, technology, and culture are all essential components of this platform mindset. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with David. If you have a few extra minutes, stick around at the end of the episode for additional wisdom from David on how he brings business best practices to one of his passions, barbecue, where he's advising what has become one of the rising stars of the Dallas barbecue scene. As always, thank you for listening to Leading Voices. If you have a few minutes, please remember to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, and please share your favorite episode with friends and colleagues. Feel free to email me with comments or suggestions at matt at I hope that you enjoy the conversation with David Stanford. Which is David Stanford. Welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to which is really a trends and best practices discussion around what I call the real estate enterprise or business platform. And just a quick line here, it's long been my assertion, off-repeated on leading voices, that in the real estate business, we focus on deals and finance, transactions, investments, 
but now of equal importance in actual performance that actually also means the quality and depth of the real estate operations and business platforms. And I think that's, and you focus on both sides, we focus on both sides at Terra Search Partners, but that's what I want to talk to you about is that side of the, of the business that is the culture of the transactions, I'm sorry, the culture, the people, the process, the improvement. What does that mean for the real estate enterprise going forward? So I think that's going to be much of our conversation. Okay. David, talk, talk to me about, just introduce yourself and introduce Real Foundations so our listeners know who you are. David Stanford, uh, grew up in a small town in Central Texas, about 20,000 people. The, the place is called Brownwood. My parents are still there. Wow. And uh, that's kind of where I learned my value system, for sure. And uh, I've been in the real estate sort of advisory consulting management uh, advisory side for 33 years now, believe it or not. What is Real Foundations? A, a bit, when did you found it? And again, we're going to tell the story of it, but when did you found it and what do you guys do? What position do you play in the real estate firmament? Uh, we, we started Real Foundations in June of 2000. This is our 22nd season mm-hmm. as Real Foundations. And what we do, a pretty simple business mission that, that has been from day one, the same thing. We help comp- real estate companies run better. Mm-hmm. We don't help them buy assets. We don't finance things. We're not managing things. We help them run better. Matt, you'll remember the BASF commercials of long ago. Mm-hmm. We don't make many of the things you buy. We make the things you buy better. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what we are. We're in the the insides and the guts of operations of very, very large and small real estate platforms across a wide gamut of sectors. Mm-hmm. We focus extensively and only on the built environment. Got it. And so your thesis is my thesis that the real estate business platform matters. Oh, yeah. It matters a lot. Traditionally, the way kind of real estate has been kept score is capital assets and a few leaders that make some of those decisions mm-hmm. and then everything else just kind of happens with everybody else. But I don't really like all that, you know, heavy operational stuff. I like to do deals, mm-hmm. raise capital mm-hmm. and what we focus on the 95% of the work that we do is what we call the operating platform, mm-hmm. which is taking care of all of the work performed by or on behalf of a real estate enterprise, the sourcing of that work, real estate companies have been outsourcing stuff for a long time. And then the final thing is the technology or the tools and information related to that work. Mm-hmm. And this has only become more important as real estate companies have reached scale. Back before there was scale and it was a world of only merchant builders, maybe it didn't matter that much. But once you have an a- AUM or you're a REIT, then the existing portfolio and therefore the existing platform to run it is what the needle doesn't just move the needle. It is the needle. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that works as, you know, as small as, you know, a few thousand units of multifamily or single family mm-hmm. because it's so operationally intensive. Mm-hmm. And 
if you if you can't go and count up all of the hours expended to get the work done by an enterprise, ninety eight percent of those hours are spent in oper operating platform. Mm -hmm. And and give a sense of the breadth of your company just for a minute. How many consultants do you have? Is this global? Kind of just yeah. talk about size, scale, breadth, width. So RF is today. Uh, October 21 is roughly a little over 400 employees. Mm -hmm. We are multi-country. I don't really call us global yet because we're, we're in a few places. We've right. operated in 40 countries, but we have people in multiple countries. Um, and, and we have two primary businesses, a advisory consulting project-based business mm -hmm. and we also have a managed services or outsourcing business mm -hmm. where we pick up key pieces of operations and we perform them for our clients on a multi-year contract basis got it and we're going to talk about the work that you do in stories that become real for everyone. And their stories less about real foundations than real stories about mm -hmm. what moves the needle in the real estate business. Um, it, it's funny, a couple months ago, I was in Boston and it was early in the morning and you and I had an appointment at eight o'clock and I was on one of these rent by the hour bicycles on the Charles. I went to the end of the Charles and I sat in a park bench and you told a story of he said, you know, cap rates, they're at three, three and a half. That sounds crazy. But once you put the operating model on top of it and right-size the business, automatically, that's no three. That's like a five. I, you could do the math for me. But just talk about that concept because it makes it very, very real. And I think the example that I was talking about was, uh, you know, a mid-size multifamily operator who was really looking at, uh, they had made a number of acquisitions sort of over the years. They did some portfolio deals. They did some asset deals. They bought a couple of entities, mm -hmm. but had never really integrated and focused and like slowed down, take a step back. And it's like, what can we do better sort of across the enterprise? It's kind of like getting a little hard and things seem out of control. Um, so we wrapped all of that into a project called project 300 mm -hmm. and the whole goal of that was 300 basis points of NOI margin improvement. Mm -hmm. And there were probably a dozen major initiatives over an 18 month period. And the, you know, people like to keep score. You know, I think we, we, we actually achieved more than 300 basis points and you, know, you can really take that to the bank. You sure can. You do the math on that at a, three and a half cap rate on trailing NOI, it's a lot of value creation from your existing portfolio. Right. Now we've worked with some people, uh, one of the early single family rental platforms. And I remember when, cause the mission at that time, when this was early days of SFR was buy, 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 buy. <laughs> right. Um, and we'll figure out the operations later. When we started working with them, their NOI margins um, across the board on average were about 52, 53%. Mm -hmm. That same portfolio today is operating probably four times as large number of homes. Mm -hmm. And 
some of the their regions are operating almost 80% NOI margin. Hmm. We helped stitch together the platform that was able to kind of get them ready for that. Mm-hmm. Let's let's drill down on both of those stories. I'm curious. In uh, Project 300, did you get that company to industry standard or 100 basis points better than industry standard, if, if you could guess at that? Uh, on Project 300, I don't know that we got I think they were, I think they were pretty low to begin with. Mm-hmm. I think we got them to sort of the lower part of their peer group. Hmm. If they would have been bolder, we could have gotten probably another 300 basis points. Right. You know, it's hard to change. And rewiring oneself while running the business is is difficult. It, it's interesting. Uh, we did work last year with a storied operator of multifamily and office um, one of those family businesses, and you know the name. And they'd hired in a consultant because they suspected that their multifamily portfolio was operating ineffectively, and it was old school, whatever that means in this particular mm-hmm. case. They brought in a consultant, not us, and they found that 300. They may have found that 500 basis points. It was huge. It mm-hmm. was a painful transition particularly in a family business that had a level of loyalty to very, very long-term employees as well as long-term practices. Um, but I maybe half the business is, has that level of improvement ahead of them. You know, we see that a lot. And one of the things that we're seeing now is we, we have been in this new space, all the rage called single-family rental. Right we're seeing a lot of innovation that happened there and there's a heavy use of technology because mm-hmm. you don't have on-site management that's uh, created a lot of innovation in that space so they can operate these portfolios at scale mm-hmm. there's a ton of technology innovation coming out of that and now what we're seeing is that is now going back into the multifamily operating models right. And they're now doing that, and there's some pretty good examples, some public companies that are adopting, you know, technology and process rigor to, uh, you know, move NOI margins by two, 300 basis points on top of sort of world-class operations already. It's interesting. We've had two different guests, I think two, maybe three guests uh, from Single Family Rental on the podcast. And A, it's enabled by technology, wouldn't have happened in the first place. B, it's enabled enabled by the operating platforms of multifamily that were created 20 years ago. Then yep. they went to SFR, they leapfrogged mm-hmm. it, and now those technologies and operating platform concepts are coming back to multifamily, which is just fascinating. It is. And, and now we are seeing the emergence still early of rental, residential rental platforms, mm-hmm. not multifamily, not single family rental, not even home building, but all three. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing home builders entering the apartment space and the single family rental space. We're seeing single family rental uh, companies become home builders. Right. And we're seeing multifamily companies do both. 
and trying to figure out how to do this at scale. Well, so it's a fascinating period right now. It is, and converge it to the next place, which is that's also merging in with with overnight stay and Airbnb. We're doing work with Central, which is a operating platform and ownership vehicle that right. combines what we used to call corporate housing, so month stays, mm-hmm. furnished apartments, regular apartments, but they want people to, they're happy for people to get out and go travel because then they can rent them for the weekend. And then also overnight stays all in the same place. So that yeah. level of convergence between single family, multifamily hospitality is, uh, I'd say it's long overdue, but never thought it would happen. Yeah. But what we did is we borrowed from our home building knowledge of interaction, you know, intimate interaction with customers um, and a highly emotional, you know, buying process. Yep. And then our uh, work with, uh, large, you know, four or 500,000 unit multifamily operators who had to do Mm -hmm. things very efficiently Mm -hmm. and effectively. Mm -hmm. And then even we borrowed from some of our work in with the corporate occupiers, like, you know, the bank, large banks who do lots and lots and lots of small projects Mm -hmm. for making space moves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we basically combined sort of experience and ideas from all three mm-hmm. and we use that with along with the operating model we mapped all this stuff out and uh that's what we use for our sort of entree into single family rental at scale right and it takes someone looking across the board at an operational platform to see those trends together and it takes that kind of view into doing it and that kind of experience to pull out the threads from each of those. Talk about the kind of work you do and some stories like this in hospitality, in industrial, retail, other forms of real estate. Let me kind of give, paint the picture of the landscape where we work. So we, we talk about six sectors we focus on in the built environment. The first is development, <laughs> people who make spaces where people live, work, shop, and play. And that's horizontal development, vertical development. Most of our development clients are doing more than just development. Mm-hmm. But so, so we focus on development. The second is residential, three forms of residential, traditional multifamily and all the different variants, uh, for sale housing, and um, single family rental. Mm-hmm. The third the third sector that we focus on is income producing owner operators, mostly commercial. So office, industrial, retail, data centers, there's different, different types. Mm-hmm. Uh, hospitality is in there. Uh, we work, the fourth sector is large service providers like a JLL or CBRE that kind of make the industry work they provide transaction support and property management facilities management at large scale Mm -hmm. global basis Mm -hmm. the fifth sector that we focus on is the capital supply to real estate Mm -hmm. so that's the investment both debt and equity we primarily work in the on the equity side and that's lps who allocate capital into real estate and then GPs or fund managers, private equity firms, investment managers who gather up that capital, mm-hmm. put it to work mm-hmm. at scale. And then the last sector is corporate occupiers. So those are the, the non-real estate companies, 
Fortune 2000 that actually use all the real estate. They have big estates and they have big occupancy costs, although those are coming down um, considerably mm-hmm. uh, post, post-COVID uh, in, in some respects. And I think that the, the office sector is going to have a, have a, uh, you know, a long 10 years, you know, post COVID recovery. So those are the sectors that we cover. To what you said before of helping real estate companies operate better. How much of the place that you came to, and this is so quick was, well, let's take the best from each versus let's take the best from the industry as well. And where did their operating platforms, where were they before on the 300 basis point test? Where are they now on the 300 basis point test? And where are you going to help get them get into the future in that? If you, if you pay attention to mergers, there's, there's always some number that's a synergy number. Mm-hmm. And, and a large part of that synergy number is GNA sort of admin cost right. and, you know, leadership salaries. So that's sort of the easy part that the investment bankers make up in the back room somewhere on a wall and then present it to us. Um, the, the real juice and something like that will be proven out over time, mm-hmm. but you, you create more scale. You take this one time look and intensively how you actually operate on both sides. You pick and choose sort of the best practices from each mm-hmm. really the the industry best practices come later because it's so accelerated. Right. But uh, we have uh, overachieved the synergy target, at least on a run rate basis, uh-huh. by probably 30, 40%. Mm-hmm. We believe there's a lot more to go. Mm-hmm. And we just, we're still very early in that process. So let's mash up a couple of other thoughts here. One, as you said, a lot of your work is psychology and people are resistant to change. And so let's talk about that within the context of a merger, which is normally you need someone else to help you figure this out. And then also post-merger, in that case, we're better to just a normal company that's above or below yeah. the 300 basis point curve. How, mm-hmm. how do you get people to change and adopt this stuff? Well, uh, we sell ideas all the time. Mm-hmm. We're in the business of selling ideas and creating stories where we transition those ideas from our ideas or the industry ideas and articulate those with a value proposition where people get excited about them and get behind them. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a, there's an art to doing that. Um, And, you know, a lot of this is about perspective. So when you're, you're busy every day, you're probably bare, like, understaffed or sort of barely appropriately staffed you're focused on the Mm day-to-day you you got you got customers and tenants coming at you you're looking at onboarding new deals no one has time to sit back and reflect on improving the business and oftentimes i tell the story about what royal foundations is is just like a different form of a plumber you could think of us with our sort of name badge on the left side of our, our work shirts. Mm-hmm. And the uh, sort of the story goes like this, Matt. You come in from vacation, a week's vacation, and uh, you come into the house late at night. Your kids are screaming. 
um, you open the door, you walk down the hallway and you're met with water on the floor, squish, squish, squish. Mm-hmm. At that very moment, you have a choice to make. You become the consultant or you hire somebody with the right tools, resources, and experience to solve the hot water heater problem. Cause you might get hurt. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the value that we provide. We have perspective. We have seen lots of these problems before. We have the tools in our toolkit. It's our full-time job. It's not a part-time job. Right. You know, we have, we know how to deploy the technology to uh, assist in the right way. I think you're being unfair to yourself though. So I think of the plumber, I think of the guy like under the sink, I think of the crack thing, you know, the plumber, <laughs> sorry guys. But um, I yeah, also but we, think- we get we get down and dirty like that. In the, I know you the do. Operation. So that's only half of it though, because that's when the sink is leaking and it's overflowed and you're in trouble. But also yeah. companies come to you when things are great and they want to make it greater. Things yeah. People come to you when it's time to do a transition of a system. People mm-hmm. come to you when they're looking of what's ahead and they don't know even what it is. So you're a psychologist, you're a plumber, you're a futurist. Let's put all those together. Yeah. So here's a here's probably a good story for that. Since uh, 2014, I've been talking about in the multifamily or the rental space, residential mm-hmm. rental space, the concept of an airplane test. Very simple. Um, the and it's based on the theory of the consumerization mm-hmm. of the residential rental living process. Mm-hmm. Amazon has taught everyone to raise their expectation of a consumer interaction. Mm-hmm. I can go to a place, order something, it'll be here in you know a few hours. You're going to communicate with me the whole time. Mm-hmm. I don't have to talk to a human. So the airplane test is pretty simple. Um, it is the, the concept of getting on an airplane with a rather poor internet connection. Get up in the sky. You need a place to, instead of an Airbnb, like our discussion before we uh, got on or get in a hotel, mm-hmm. I need a place to stay. So in one transaction with a very thin connection from you know 30,000 feet, I can find, locate, apply for, get screened, get qualified, uh, do my application fees, set Mm -hmm. my rent up, sign my lease, get my digital key, order my furniture, and have a key, a digital key that when I land, I can go through the access controls um, from my key on my phone and go sleep there at night. I can do that in a single transaction mm-hmm. um, with no human. The if you think about that from an operating cost standpoint, mm-hmm. and decreasing the noise and friction from that, that is something that has now been accelerated by COVID by ten years. And we're seeing a lot of folks now starting to ask the question: What what can I do differently? What should I do differently? It's hard. I have a hard time hiring people and keeping people. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a uh, sort of a staffing crisis, which is what you work on all the time. 
Yep. So how can I do the same or more work, have a better customer experience with less friction, and uh, do that with, with the appropriate use of technology? Technology is not a panacea. It's not magic. Um, but it can certainly enable that. <clears throat> and so we're, we're starting to see companies come to us and say, how do you help us with all that? Right. And those are, those are fun conversations. You got to unpack them, really figure out, you know, what exactly the scope of that would look like, um, what their outcomes they really need to be. But you connect that to the sort of early in our conversation about NOI margin improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of hard to be against something like that, that produces real value creation. Absolutely. And you first had that airplane test concept in 2013. So you're an early thinker. Yeah. 2014, there was a guy from the Inman group Mm -hmm. on the sort of home building side. He had something similar. I didn't know about this until just the other day, but he had something called the latte vision with Mm -hmm. home building is like, I want to be able to, to buy a house as easy it is ordering a latte at Starbucks. I think that's a, a very big sim- simplification because <laughs> all the logistics involved and, you know, color selections and the emotion of buying the house it's, and then connecting that to the, the trade contractor network is much more difficult, but we're seeing it now yeah, on course. the home building side. We're, we're seeing the buy now buttons. Absolutely. And it's, it's been, and COVID accelerated all of those oh, yeah. things together. And you're seeing it in an office because I can go get, you know, we're an industrious space. So yes. we don't have furniture to lug around no more. I don't have files to lug yeah. around. You got a two page lease. You, you don't have it. a 98 page lease that's worked on by lawyers for six weeks on each side. Yeah. So now let's talk about the democratization of this within the industry is are all these things only really affordable to large companies or does technology democratize that? You know, it does to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. We certainly see smaller, more nimble, agile um, companies that are emerging that have three or 4,000 homes or units who can hit in the high to mid seventies, you know, high margin. Because from the ground up, they were paying mm-hmm. close attention to the platform and how they would operate, mm-hmm. how they would source differently, and how they would deploy technology from the very beginning. If you're free and clear from all of the legacy mm-hmm. thinking and the legacy processes and the legacy mm-hmm. technology, and you mm-hmm. deploy sort of smartly the right operating model, um, it's available for anyone. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a company knowing they're going to be around because the first thing you have to do is get assets, you think, and you have to get enough assets and have made enough money to then afford to do this. But what you're suggesting is maybe then it's a little bit too late in your in your pathway, in your culture. <laughs> it's a lot harder. It doesn't get any easier. Although I see... I, I see that companies plateau. I was talking to someone yesterday about they, they're ready to get a real controller instead of the bookkeeper that the father who founded the company 25 years ago did. Someone out there is going to be laughing at this because they, they listen to the podcast. But 
you know, companies plateau, they get to the next level, that next level, then they're ready for a super controller. But then at that next level, they're going to be ready for a real CFO. And maybe the super controller could grow to that person. But oftentimes you're leapfrogging the team that you were able to afford and build at a certain time of scale. Any comments about how that works with your clients and the stories you're telling? Um, is you, you know, you get to some mm-hmm. point, you plateau, um, it becomes a little bit hard and, you know, convoluted. And those that have the, right, I guess, the willpower and fortitude to take a step back, do a little bit of navel gazing and take action now versus, you know, when we have 25 billion of AUM. My, our advice to companies is mm-hmm. do it now because it's just going to get twice as hard going forward. It is not easier to change later. Mm-hmm. It's easier to change when you're smaller mm-hmm. and improve the operations and then focus on mm-hmm. continuously improving that over time. Um, you know, there's, there's not been a big recognized need for R&D and innovation in the real estate space up until maybe the last two and a half, three years. And now we see in clients, mm-hmm. a lot of folks with the chief innovation officer or something who report to the CEO. There's, so, so that's all good. Mm-hmm. The, the, the issue with that is they're usually an army of one. And so their, their mission is to mm-hmm. go transform everything and make innovation happen. But then they're facing the, entrenched way of doing business and they're kind of the cool kid with the cool mission and Mm -hmm. and everybody else has to run the day-to-day so that that gets difficult i think we have a solution for that is like you know we have a workforce that is in the business doing that kind of innovation and transformation work all the time uh but it's good to Mm -hmm. see that Mm -hmm. out there and then we hadn't touched on this yet but there's the this thing called prop tech which we're in the third version mm-hmm. of and since we started, you know, real estate.com was back in the late nineties, early 2000s. We were part of that back at uh, EY when we were there. Mm-hmm. And now in the last, uh, I think three years, three and a half, four years, there's been about 50 plus billion, maybe it's approaching 60 billion of capital deployed to property meets technology. There's roughly 9,000 right. and counting prop tech firms, way too many. And then there's another 10,000 mm-hmm. FinTech, InsureTech, Marketing Tech, you know, horizontal applications. So if you, mm-hmm. you add that together, it's 20,000 firms. You're, each of the listeners that were, were listening to this, they're probably tired of getting those calls right now. It's confusing. Like, I don't know who to choose. Mm-hmm. So there is some real innovation out there, but it's hard to sift through and figure out how to apply some of those things to your environment. The thing that's constant in, in, a, in a change like that is the work. The work doesn't change dramatically year over year. It's pretty consistent. And if you focus on the work and looking at applying technology to the work, and where you get the biggest bang for the buck, mm-hmm. um, the back to the model of the platform, that 
work map is very consistent and you can use that to look at these different solutions and stack them up and figure out where you might get the best mm -hmm. bang and where you should invest. Right. And talk about that work, how you help make sense of the 10,000 prop tech companies for clients. And then the role, maybe I usually, sometimes there's a chief innovation officer, but there's usually a chief technology officer and they have a role. If that role is as a solo, they're in trouble. If they're not embedded in the company and the COO and the head of property management or the head of development on their parts of it care just as much about new ideas, then you're in trouble. But I would think that the chief information officer is oftentimes your partner in crime and bringing you in and then helping this stuff get done in a company. Talk about that role and how that's evolved. So one comment on the chief technology officer, chief information officer, until fairly recent times, the view of data as an asset mm -hmm. inside the real estate business, that's a very new concept. Mm -hmm. Because what the assets were, were the buildings. Mm -hmm. um, and they were the things that had meaning. More recently, the information about those assets, the people, the kinds of uses, the patterns, um, what the buildings can and will tell you mm -hmm. about occupancy, what the people are doing, how are they behaving inside of stores, um, all of that data is really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, so now we're on this thing about, oh, information is really important now. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just um, who, paid the, who paid the rent. Way, way more than that. Now, we're seeing that have a, have a dramatic impact on the information provisioning or technology function. Because mm -hmm. for the last 25 years, um, the charge and the scope of that function has really been on the back office and the middle office. Um, accounting for, you know, accounting for things, making sure that the kind of the basic operations were relatively consistent and keeping score. Um, until the, you know, the, the recent past, the technology or information function in large property companies has not been tasked with enabling the, the, the technology in the property. Mm -hmm. And they haven't been staffed for it. But now that's coming at, at the Break technology function. Right. Like a huge snowball rolling right. downhill. Mm -hmm. But I don't think companies have realized that they're going to have to staff up for that to really get the value of all of that data. Is it staffing up or is it staffing differently? At particularly at site level. You have to have different skills and capabilities mm -hmm. to be able to deal with that because, you know, enabling things inside of a building is very different than putting in a property management system. Right. So the, you know, the expectations, capabilities and skill set differences are are, are real. Hey, I keep interrupting uh, you, but I have a question about that. If you have different people at the site level because they have to be able to deal with that in addition to the other property management stuff they did, and if that requires a more sophisticated person with more training because the business platform is more unique to your company, 
does that make turnover go down and stickier? You're paying people more, but they're probably going to be stickier because they can't just go to the other company because the other company has a different platform to use in that business. And that's a really transformational difference because I know in the apartment business, it's like 50% turnover or 40% turnover year over year at the site level. Yeah, we're not really seeing that yet. But what we are seeing, and this is a kind of a fine line here, mm-hmm. the enablement mm-hmm. of information provisioning from the assets, like the assets, like if you get them all hooked up, it doesn't require a bunch of people to gather that data. There's sensors, you know, there's all these building systems, they're telling you lots of things. Mm-hmm. So the enablement and sort of the monitoring of that is key, which is usually like historically not been a function of corporate IT inside of real estate. Now, increasingly, it is becoming that. So interestingly, Matt, what, what that's doing is enabling centralization or sourcing over distance. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing impacts of on-site staffing reduction. Uh, one of the public rates is pretty pretty uh, transparent about this and the the headcount year over year numbers uh site level headcount numbers are you know 20 plus percent down Mm. on site so what they're they're able to do is kind of run the business with fewer people pull a bunch of administrative kind of task work off Mm -hmm. and and then this also fits into the new world that we're living in of working over distance right. and some of that work does not require being, you know, elbow to elbow with other people in that office to get that work done. Mm-hmm. And so we are seeing sort of slightly higher retention rates with that, um, kind of more satisfactory work being performed, kind of more analytical work mm-hmm. versus the daily grind of just doing tasks management. Yeah. I would think that used to be like a maintenance person in a site would be totally interchangeable one company to another 10, 15 years ago. But once you come into these companies with that level of differentiation around how they operate the properties, I'm just thinking it's a different model. Yeah, it is. But right now it's really hard to hire maintenance folks. (laughs) And we have clients with 30% vacancies and it is increasingly difficult to hire, you know, we're having less people into the vocational work. We don't have as much immigration. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get political here. Mm-hmm. But the workforce, you know, after COVID is disappearing, it is going to take a while to, you know, rebuild that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a large part of this will be about how do how do you deploy technology? How do you become more efficient? How do you work across multiple sites? How do you optimize, mm-hmm. you know, your your work and your routes so you can get more accomplished during an eight-hour shift? Right. I've never heard people brag that Amazon's a wonderful place to work at the warehouse. So if the industry is losing people to Amazon, then that's a low bar. But it is an ongoing issue. The question is who wants to build a career in, let's say, apartment management or senior housing management, right? And what's that look like? And the, what's the meaning of that career? And who would step into it and stay with it? And it's incumbent upon these different sectors, apartments, co-working spaces, seniors housing, for those 
industries to be able to attract people. Yeah, you touch on something that's a kind of a sore spot for me. So, you know, there are literally dozens, maybe even hundreds of hotel management schools right. in the U.S. and through the world. And there were three hoteliers and like after the first world war that got together and said, all these people are coming back. People are going to take trips. We need to teach people how to be hotel managers. Right. So they educated. I mean, they, they started this whole education process. Um, I've been sort of on this kick to like discover how many residential property management school programs there are. Mm -hmm. There might be a dozen in the United Maybe. States and not very many. And we are not as an industry mm -hmm. doing a good job of presenting this as a professional long-term career path. But with this technology advancement and sort of lifting the administrative right. tasks off of people, yep. but allowing them to do more interesting analytical work and, and the consumerization kind of mm -hmm. becoming a consumer product company mm -hmm. versus a company that sells boxes for tenants or problems. Right. And they just complain all the time. That's a mindset difference. Yep. And I think if we can take that and do something with that with young people mm -hmm. um, and sell it differently and then work that into universities, that's going to be a big thing. My alma mater at Baylor, I met the new dean you know, six weeks ago, and we don't really have a much of a real estate program. Mm -hmm. And that was my number one charge. I was like, this is the biggest asset class in the world. I ripped off a bunch of statistics. Right. And it was like, we got people entering workforce from our university and we're not, we're not teaching any of them the skills that are required in the biggest industry in the world. Exactly. So we're going to go do something. Well, about Hey, that. one idea to that, I hadn't thought about this before is, is you merge the hotel schools because not everyone's jumping to hospitality anymore because it's such a cyclical industry. Like they sh yeah. it should be hospitality and apartment management. And seniors well, housing because the, the mindset, right? The mindset is so right. We we tried to do this. We had a sort of stint with the large REIT in the late nineties, and one of the ideas was to um, go and take GMs mm -hmm. from hotels mm -hmm. and make them property managers. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, you know, we started that and had some success and then their business changed, but we're kind of back to that because the mindset is not, Hey, I'm trying to get this like spreadsheet done for somebody up in corporate and I'm doing the weekly traffic analysis manually on Excel or, right. you know, in pencil and you're coming into my office and you're bugging me. Mm -hmm. What do you want mm -hmm. versus hospitality mindset? How can I help make your stay more comfortable? Right. And there is going to be a big change in that mindset. Yep. And I love the idea of like going to these hotel schools and saying, let's cross train some folks. Yeah. Because at least I have a, I have a friend that was, went to hotel management school and I told him, I was like, you know, that hotels don't ever close, but they don't ever, ever close. Right. At least, you know, on most multifamily sites and residential sites, people sleep. Mm -hmm. And they're not open, you know, 24 hours a day. 
I, I think there's an opportunity there Huge. for sure. It's like my friend from uh, college who went into anesthesiology instead of emergency medicine because you get to sleep at night. It's a predictable business, <laughs> right? So maybe the apartment is, hey, one last question before we talk to the roots of real foundations. And the last question mm -hmm. is uh, environment and sustainability. So are, are you involved in that with real estate companies? Where do we grade on that? And yeah. gosh, we have a much, 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 much better job that we must do. And lots of people have heard this. It's a bit real estate's the biggest uh, user of carbon in the world. We have been in that sort of sustainability, enablement, kind of energy, social sort of measurement since the before it was cool. Mm -hmm before the U.S. Green Building Council was, was around. And uh, it was, at the time, largely focused on energy management mm -hmm. and reporting. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, was, I got involved, I got tapped by NARATE to be a judge in their Leader in the Light series. Mm -hmm. And I knew what that was about. It was about the the energy star rating game. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really agree with the, the central thesis mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. So when they read approached me, I was like, I'll be happy to do it, but we need to change this to look at the portfolio, not six buildings who are the best right. buildings. And we need to look at that across the universe of REITs mm -hmm. because this needs to be just a business as usual thing. It doesn't need to be that different. Mm -hmm. So the first two years of that, we kind of struggled trying to figure out how, do you, how you do that, how to keep score. And luckily for us, this was 2019 timeframe, I think, the global real estate sustainability benchmarking thing, Gresby, came out. And I was able to talk NARIT into adopting that, just the scoring mm -hmm. methodology. Mm -hmm. And it was more sort of across the portfolio. It certainly wasn't perfect, but it was applicable to all different REITs. And it measured more than just energy. And it measured the whole portfolio performance. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was kind of a watershed moment. Mm -hmm. That was early 2010 to 2000, I don't know, 13 or 14. And then the, the ESG thing kind of lost a little bit of wind in the sales for a few years. Right. And now with this administration, it is back in full force. We've never heard so many conversations about this. Um, and it's, it's much bigger than environmental. The other two social and governance are very big, certainly harder to measure. Uh, real estate's always been fairly good, at least institutional real estate on the governance because they have, you know, very, very sophisticated capital sources above them, you know, demanding good governance. And, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot more adoption and we have, we have a couple of clients who are really good at, you know, looking at, uh, from a due diligence standpoint, looking at the cost to run a building, um, based on what they know, how they see their portfolio operating and they can afford to pay just a little slight premium on a cap rate right. basis to buy a building where they know they can improve and target those operations, make them run better. 
and get the sustainability credit as well. But we're we're early days. Early days and moving quickly. I it shocks me with how little people look at that when they're either buying, holding, or then selling on that subject. Because real estate traditionally people get in and out. Not traditionally, a quarter of the business is in and out. So in and out, you don't care as much in the same way. You don't get paid for well, it. Well, and yeah, in order to get capital now, if you can't answer the ESG thing heads up and show real progress. It's hard to get meetings, especially with some of the European folks. I think it's true, but I hate the convergence of E, S, and G because I want each of them to be judged separately and and with value, right? So I want to change subject and talk about you. And so, and I want to hear how Real Foundations was started. But before that, you are, believe it or not, in 105 episodes of Leading Voices, you are the first person from whose lips were the words Kenneth Leventhal uttered. So I just... I'm just curious to spend a few minutes on that before you talk about founding your own company. Well, it was probably never my vision to, to start my own company from the beginning. I took one real estate class at Baylor. Mm-hmm. I took it from the guy who taught my mom real estate class at Baylor. Uh-huh. Same guy. Wow. I didn't learn a whole lot, but he was a dear man. So I didn't have any real real estate training. So whenever I went to interview I talked with the big eight at the time because my mom told me I had to get an accounting degree or mm-hmm. she would disown me. And then I went to Montana to become a rancher and a trout fisherman. Right. But then I came back. So I interviewed with some of the big eight at the time. And that was, you know, interesting. They were going to do oil and gas work and this and that. But it wasn't terribly tangible. I talked to these people from Kenneth Leventhal. And immediately I could feel a sense of passion Hmm. for the built environment. And it just identified with me. And then, you know, walking around out of that interview at the career placement office at Baylor forever changed my view of the physical environment. I looked around Baylor. There was all this real estate like, oh, it's all around me all the time. That's my career. Wow. Um, and it was that transformational. It was great uh-huh. because our assets are always very, very visible. Mm-hmm. They're not pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. They're very tangible. So I started Leventhal and, uh, Leventhal had made a name for itself as a kind of a workout restructuring mm-hmm. place, doing real tricky, um, debt restructuring and kind of workouts in the late eighties, early nineties then transitioned into closing down banks and SNLs during that crisis period and doing a lot of work for the RTC yep. um, on packaging up all these broken deals into this thing called securitization. And along the way, I was able to learn quite a bit about how to apply technology to large problem sets mm-hmm. and uh, you know, kept running with that through my career. And there were a number of us here at Real Foundations who started our careers at that place. And we, we pay homage to them and mm-hmm. everything that we do. Um, we are, our, uh, um, key tenets of our business are work hard, tell the truth, do what you say you're going to do. And that was very much the sort of the mindset of Leventhal. Mm-hmm. Uh, our two conference rooms in Dallas are named Leventhal and Ross. Mm-hmm. 
Stan. And then, you know, we have others. Dale Reese, a dear friend of mine, she ran the real estate group uh, after Stan retired. Mm-hmm. It was a great place to learn. Mm-hmm. You only learn one thing. You learned a bunch about real estate. If it wasn't for you, you didn't want to stay there. So that's how we learned our passion. Mm-hmm. We try to keep that up. And uh, in the mid-90s, I think it was 95, Ernst & Young bought Leventhal. Yep. Because they wanted to be, they wanted to go deep in an in an industry, mm-hmm. and that was really good for us because Ernst and Young had a professional management consulting practice, and we learned a lot. We took a lot out of that, and then kind of getting to the real foundation story in the late '90s after Enron, the SEC was disassociating large consulting organizations with their audit brethren and forcing them to kind of divest. Right. And EY decided to sell the consulting group uh, to uh, Capgemini. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't want to do that. Uh, that was a partner meeting in November of 99. It was announced. And we had four partners in that group. And we all found ourselves out in the back hallway of the, the meeting there in Orlando planning our escape we hadn't planned to start a company Mm -hmm. but it was sort of the opportunity was presented and that was the time of the early real estate.com era Mm -hmm. and we could have done something like that we were involved with some of those startups we created a couple of startups Mm -hmm. at the time but we liked what we did and so we decided to keep doing that we went out and raised a little bit of capital in the spring of 2000 and got ourselves in business in June mm-hmm. and we've survived three kind of scary time periods, three cycles. And right. We're going strong now. You sure. Are. And when was it at KL that you kind of moved from being an accounting guy to being a consulting guy about making real estate companies operate great? And then. Yeah, that- it was sort of in the, yeah, that was in the kind of the early mid nineties. Okay. So with those very, very large kind of, uh, RTC projects, mm-hmm. we had to do due diligence on 6,000 non-performing loans. Right. And if you think about the technology set at the time, it was pretty hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned a lot about, you know, solving complex problems and applying technology to large data sets in real estate from that. And that was just like pure, like break out the book and like figure it out. Cause there wasn't anybody there to teach us. Right. And uh, after the RTC, that was now the REIT 2.0 mm-hmm. time frame and the invention of a financial term called FFO, mm-hmm. uh, which is very favorable mm-hmm. for the REIT industry and helped it take off. And from that time in like probably 92, 93, we started building a business to advise companies on, guess what, their operating platform. Right. Because they had, they had to behave like other well-governed uh, institutional enterprises competing for capital in the public markets. Got it. They had to look, act, and feel like a real company mm-hmm. with enterprise operations, with good processes, with good reporting. Mm-hmm. And that's how we built our management consulting practice. Got it. And then that's the business that you're in today because that's all you guys do. That plus the managed services business, which we've been growing for about 
I don't know, 15 years. We're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but so this gives you half an elevator speech about the managed service business. You know, that's relatively simple. Um, you know, the the real estate world, especially home builders, mm-hmm. they're consummate outsourcers. Home builders actually don't build homes. Mm-hmm. They're sales and marketing company. Mm-hmm. They outsource the building of homes to all their contractors. But because of technology limitations and because of the fact that people were generally located in one place all doing work, Mm -hmm. lots of back office-ish things like accounts payable, like accounts receivable, like accounting, like uh, lease administration have always just had to be inside the company because technology couldn't work over borders. Right. There was, there was no concept of doing that with specialists. So as you look through the work map over time, there are lots of things, really important things like raising capital, mm-hmm. um, like development leasing, like development that have started to become outsourced mm-hmm. to experts. Mm-hmm. But the kind of day-to-day administration stuff, there was no, there was no outsourcer for. So we got into that business because at the request of our clients, primarily around technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used to do a lot of work with JD Edwards doing, you know, projects where we would replace a financial and operational system with JD Edwards, mm-hmm. and they had these people called CNC people that were experts and it was hard to keep them to kind of tune the system. Mm-hmm. So our clients started demanding of us. It's like, you do this. Mm-hmm. You helped us put this in. And I've hired four guys to try to do this. None of them want to stay because there's no career path. Mm-hmm. That was, that was how we entered that today. We've evolved that to it's uh, probably about it's approaching 40% of our business. Wow. Right. It's recurring revenue. Good thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, we didn't know about that when we started. The audit guys never really told us that that was the magic to the accounting business because mm-hmm. we were hunt and kill. We love to do projects. But this revenue that comes back every year um, is pretty good. Yeah. And we've been building that for a while. And, uh, you know, that's a good business. The other thing, Matt, that just about our business, today we're probably 30% of our revenues are outside the United States. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at the the distribution of real estate, institutional real estate around the firm and mm-hmm. around the world, mm-hmm. over time, we're going to probably get that to be the inverse. So 70% of our revenue, probably way after my time, mm-hmm. should be come from outside the United States because that's where the real estate is. Mm-hmm. 70% of it's outside the United States. And I think over time, we'll probably going to grow the managed services business and it will surpass what we do in consulting. Yeah, I bet it will. Hey, one last question about your business. I'm just curious about this is, and you have great passion for what you do as I do for what I do, but it's interesting. You're always a little bit on the outside. You get to see the breadth of the world, which is really cool and advise people Mm -hmm. about the breadth of the world. What kind of person does it take? What kind of weirdo does it take to to love (laughs) to do that versus to be embedded in a company day to day? problem solver Mm -hmm. with personality as a a kid i like i like taking things apart 
in putting them back together and in learning why and asking lots of questions. Mm -hmm. I think that and just general curiosity mm -hmm. is something that is, is really required to excel in this profession. And, you know, that's something that, that uh, you know, I wish we had more of curiosity, asking questions, understanding, like don't accept things as they are. How can we improve this? Always, how can we improve that? And just being naturally curious are, are very good kind of superpowers of consulting. I think it's interesting. I, I'm super curious. I'm not curious about how to do things differently or better necessarily as you are. I wish I had that skill. I don't question reality as much. But I'm so curious about what reality is and people's reality. So it's interesting. Okay, last question on leading voices is always the same, which is what's your advice for a young person getting into the business of the built environment? So one, I think it's a very good time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of interesting work. Um, it's being recognized as a increasingly important asset class mm -hmm. around the world. Mm -hmm. There's lots of capital coming to it. So lots of the best and brightest are coming here. You know, I think uh, early in your career, you want to learn as much as you can. Read everything you can. There's this thing called Google. You can learn almost anything. And if you're a voracious learner, you're not satisfied with the status quo, and you want to work hard, it is a terrific business. And, you know, I think the other thing that that really matters is passion for something. Mm -hmm. Some people you know, don't really have a passion for this business. That's fine. They come here, they learn that, go somewhere else where they do have passion. You know, we really want to see passion. And you don't have to like be equally passionate corporate real estate, home building. You don't have to be an expert and all that. It's really hard to do. But that's kind of what we're looking for uh, early in one's career. You know, want to work hard, want to understand things, ask questions, um, and just get in and like make things happen, and and also be good, good communicators, good storytellers. Storytellers. Otherwise, it's not real, right? Which is what you did today. So, thank you. Well, thank you, Matt. This is uh, hopefully this has been a little bit helpful for some of your listeners. I know that I love what I do. I can't think of doing anything else. And I appreciate you having me. I've been a fan of your podcast for a long time. Thank you. Well, we're mutual fans, so I'm thrilled to have you on the show. One, one thing I would like is just to thank everyone at Real Foundations, because this is certainly not about me. When we started this, we made this a firm that would outlive the founders. Mm -hmm. This is about all the hard work and dedication um, from the people that have been here. And uh, I wanted to express my thanks and admiration for all of all of what you do and i really appreciate it thank you for listening into leading voices and i hope that you enjoyed today's episode i have a request if you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable please share it with a friend or two if they're podcast wary take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen you'll change their life seriously thanks for listening and keep in touch you know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time. And who do we have on your hat?
Goldie's Barbecue. <laughs> Where's Goldie's Barbecue? As of last Monday, it's in South Fort Worth. And I helped these guys get open. Um, they were just named on the cover of Texas Monthly Barbecue list, top 50. They were number one. Nice. And they've been open since uh, early 2020. The great story. It's five guys who went to school together in Arlington. Uh-huh. And they worked at all these great barbecue places in central Texas, learning their craft and came together. And I caught them kind of at the right time. Hot barbecue has been a big hobby of mine for a long time. I've got, you know, a bunch of smoking equipment. Like I could have a barbecue restaurant, but <laughs> I never will. And uh, they got the top spot and it completely transformed their business already in a big way. Because they got the top spot. What, what, what makes the top spot versus, you know, number 10? Since you're a barbecue aficionado. Um, I, don't, I don't really understand that the scoring, the kind of the methodology. Uh-huh. But they have t- the top 50 is really hard to be on. And the difference is food, sides, experience, uh-huh. and just general sort of ambiance and whether it's a joint or whether it's too clean and right. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, too clean doesn't work, right? <laughs> Not for barbecue. <laughs> no, it's got to feel funky and fun and interesting and authentic and, you know, like pristine and antiseptic yeah. that would not